NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio, a broadcast of the National Writing Project. I'm your host today, Christina Cantrell, and I'm logging in from my home, my home office in downtown Philadelphia. Uh, today we'll be speaking with Joshua Block. He's a local educator and an author of the book Teaching for a Living Democracy, which was published by TC Press in 2020. I'm really happy to talk to Joshua today because his work um, focuses really uh, on the ways that teachers can um, support the experience of their students and think about how to build a living democracy in your classroom and in your community. So these feel like really important topics for today. So just to uh, show you the book um, also, which features his students right on the cover. Um, I also wanted Josh to, um, to do this radio show as a um, broadcast video also because um, I wanted him to share some of the work that his students and he's been developing with his students themselves. I, I did this because as a Philadelphian, I run into Josh's work out in the world, <laughs> you know, so you can see it online. So he'll talk about some of that online stuff, but also, you know, when I've been doing things like walking to the grocery store to Trader Joe's, I, I walk into, uh, I see these beautiful portraits of students and some of their writing under a bridge right by the supermarket. And this is Josh um, and his students bringing their work out into the community and supporting us in sort of developing as a democracy here in Philadelphia. So I so appreciate this work and really wanted Josh to be able to share it uh, with everybody listening and tuning in here. So thanks for joining us and thanks for being here, Josh. Um, Josh will lead us, um, we'll share your, you'll share your screen, right? And you'll introduce yourself and some of your students and share some of your work. And then you also, I know, have a prompt for us so that we as educators can really stop and think about our own work and our own practices in this context. And then after that, we'll do, um, uh, I'll just ask a few questions following up as a reader of the book. So thank you so much for being here and take it away. Sounds great. Thanks again for having me. Um, so what I would like to do is to start out by giving a little bit of context about my uh, teaching and also tell you two stories. One is a story from 9,000 miles away in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the other is a story from here in Philadelphia. So uh, this, my students, as uh, those of you that can see, are from all over the city of Philadelphia. I teach at a public magnet school called Science Leadership Academy, and our school is very intentionally designed to mimic the demographics of the city of Philadelphia. And we also intentionally accept students of a really wide range of academic levels. So part of my privilege of working with young people is um, working with all different kinds of young people who have all different kinds of academic experiences, positive and negative, and, um, it, and many other things too, before they come to me. And overall, my book is thinking about school as a place where students reconfigure understandings of themselves, their capabilities, and their roles in the world. 
And these ideas, of course, um, are fueled by many, many different teachers that I've worked with, different collaborators, and of course, many different theorists. So uh, their, their work and the ways that it inspired me is in the book, but I could just name a couple people like um, Maxine Green and her ideas of thinking about more vibrant ways of being and Grace Lee Boggs thinking about the ideas of how children should be given a sense of the unique capacity of humans to change society and bell hooks talking about the transgressive nature and possibilities of education um, and part of that is that hook says is reinscribing systems of domination so these are among the many ideas that swirl around in my head um, and i've been working with students for almost 20 years actually 20 years and uh, i had the enormous privilege of spending a semester in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And uh, that name is both the indigenous name and the colonized name of the country of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I'll explain uh, why I'm using both names because I really, uh, I'll explain it through my story because I really learned a lot about what it means to think about decolonization while I was there. So while, while I was there, I, I was able to visit many different schools and work with teachers in many different contexts. And early in my visit, maybe about a month in, I was asked to present some of my work uh, with my students in Philadelphia to a faculty of a school, Porirua College, which is a secondary school outside Wellington, New Zealand. And I made a presentation and I was, I was nervous because I was wondering about all the different ways my, my work might or might not translate to the teachers in New Zealand. And I was really curious to think about and hear about the ways that uh, uh, it might that it might relate to work that they were doing and what it might make them think of doing um, in, in new and different ways. And so as I asked different New Zealanders about like, is this a good way to approach my presentation? And I, I was really wanting to make sure that I was um, approaching this in a conscious and sensitive way. Uh, some of my New Zealand friends said, you need to start out by introducing yourself. And you do that by writing a mihi mihi. And uh, your mihi mihi should be in the indigenous language and it should connect you to, it, through your mihi mihi, you explain your connections to the mountain that you identify with, the body of water that you identify with, and there's a short list. And I, I hedged right away because I was like, wait, you want me to speak a language in front of a, a group of about a hundred people and, um, and uh, act as if I speak this language and present myself in according to their terms, it felt to me like it would be uh, condescending or patronizing or, or maybe much worse. Um, and then uh, they're like, actually, this is the way you respectfully introduce yourself. Even if you don't do it perfectly, it shows respect that you're honoring this place and the culture of this place. And then they added on and they said, oh, as I was practicing it and asking people about pronunciation, they're like, you have to do it in a loud booming voice. <laughs> so of course my heart just kind of dropped and I was like, this feels really uncomfortable. Um, but I trusted them because I didn't feel like they were trying to embarrass me. And the day of the presentation, I was introduced and I stepped forward and, uh, and I did my best. And uh, as you start out, tenakotu, tenakotu, tenakotu katoa, greetings, 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 everyone. And then you, you speak through your list um, of the different ways uh, you can be identified. And I had a really interesting moment then because it turned out that in that setting, I was presenting to a staff that was primarily um, white teachers, uh, Pakia in, uh, to use the Maori term. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had just done this very 
big dramatic thing. And after I finished my mihi mihi, uh, pretty much everyone in the room made like a tiny nod, like acknowledged that I'd done it and they were ready for whatever came next. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it was like, it was shocking in its, um, in how ordinary and everyday it was. And the wow. fact that this was making space for a culture uh, that was not the uh, majority or the dominant culture, um, but it was a normal everyday thing that that is what you do. You make space for this culture and you do your best to honor its norms. And that made me really start to think about uh, what that might mean for my students in Philadelphia. And as I continued to read and think about this idea of what does it mean to make space for different uh cultures and belief, not even just beliefs, cultures, identities, I guess beliefs is in there as well. I ran across the work of Anne Milne, an amazing New Zealand educator. I highly recommend, recommend her book, Coloring in the White Spaces. And she describes schools as white stream schools. And what's helpful about that is she's helping us to understand that there's no schools that are neutral. And uh, there could be in New Zealand, Maori schools, there could be Pacifica schools, and there can be white stream schools. It's not that any school is just um, not identifying with a value system. And so in Coloring in the White Spaces, uh, Anne Milne really gets people to think about what does it mean to reclaim and sustain one's cultures and identities? Uh, So this was a really interesting thing for me to think about uh, how are, Am I helping my students to reclaim and sustain their cultures and identities through my practice? That's so such that a powerful really, question. Yeah. And such a yeah, it's one of those that is wonderful to just hold and continue to think about at all different points in the teaching experience yeah. um, and the process of working with students. And of course, beyond education as well, but this idea of reclaiming and sustaining. Nice. So that was swirling in my mind. And um, and uh, now I'd like to share with you all some one of the many ways that I've tried to enact this with my students in Philadelphia. And um, what I'm thinking about are some of these different projects that I have done with students. And what I would like to do is just talk you through um, some of the different, or I guess in this case, talk you through one specific example of a unit from start to finish that, uh, and part of the finish is the artwork that, the public artwork that Christina uh, I guess I'll say you were lucky enough to be able to walk by. I was lucky, I was so fortunate, yes. Because it was a very temporary installation in a a nice way. Um, Okay, so this is uh, a unit that is inspired by one of my teaching elders, Marsha Pincus, a longtime Philadelphia educator. uh, And uh, she helped uh, share the idea of language autobiographies with me. And we, this is in an English class and we read the book, um, Their Eyes Are Watching God, excellent book and we had all kinds of different conversations and then we after reading the book so this is several weeks into the unit we started to focus specifically on language power and identity and this is guided by some essential questions Um, and in addition to the one I just mentioned the relationship between language power and identity as a class we're thinking about what does it take and what does it mean to achieve individuality within a larger system of conformity so this these questions were really interesting First, the students, regardless of their background, some of my students speak multiple languages. Some of them have grown up speaking one language. Um, and regardless, they all bear witness to different ways that people's identities are, are responded to based on language and the ways that people change their own identities through language. Yeah. 
So as a class, we had a, a joint inquiry where we're all starting to um, toss around different ideas. We're reading essays at this point by different authors like Gloria Anzaldúa and James Baldwin, among others. Um, also, Amy Tan has an excellent essay, Mother Tongue, and students are starting to um, notice what these different authors are saying, but also think about their own experiences with language, power, and identity. So as it's going, we're doing different activities, like we make a classroom dictionary where students share at least three words that are unique to them or their culture. So it could be slang, it could be um, a word that in your family is used, uh, it could be in a different language, and they define it in an online discussion forum. So we're all sharing these words that are unique to all of us. And some students are sharing the same words and some students' entries are totally different from everyone else. And then students start to write scenes of memory um, that relate to language, power, identity in their own lives. So they're, they're really um, sorting through all these different sources and ideas as they're, again, the outside authors generating their own ideas through smaller activities starting to write and the idea of writing as a way to um, start writing as thinking as a way to develop ideas and eventually they start drafting their language autobiographies and again everyone is writing their own language autobiography but it's a very collaborative process um, first of all when the drafts are very early i might ask certain people who i've seen uh, i've seen everyone's work because it's on a google doc but i tap certain people like could you read your intro paragraph to the class and then um and maybe we hear four intro paragraphs at the start of one class period and we talk about what's going on with them. We might hear other people start to describe the larger ideas of their paper that are evolving. And their papers are a mix of these scenes of memory from their own life. I call them descriptive scenes of memory, um, which it comes from different people that are all cited in the book. And then, uh, then they have more analysis and then they're developing these larger ideas through their paper. And eventually everyone gets to the point where we come in and it's the final, we're sharing the final papers. And what that means is that they've had days of peer reviewing each other's work. So again, this very collaborative process where I'm just, I'm moving around from table to table, uh, but they're all ideally supporting each other to make their papers deeper in terms of the intellectual work and also more compelling just to read, not just as a school essay, but something that's really powerful in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so then we are sitting around in the classroom in a circle, or in these days, this happens on Zoom, but we did this an equivalent where on Zoom, everyone's reading a short passage of their paper. Um, people are snapping or clapping. And at the end, we're all giving each other props in all different directions about specific parts of different people's writing that stands out. And they were all able to post their papers to a, a public blog so we could all see each other's papers and they could be shared in a, uh, in a wider sense. And then I actually um, tell the students, uh, there's actually another, another part to this project. And uh, so after they're on the blogs, um, it, 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 in different years, a project like this has gone in different directions. One year students had to make a digital story where they, um, then turn their paper into a two to three minute uh, video that has still images, their narration and words on the screen. And other years, it became a public art project. I'm gonna show you the public art project in a minute, but this is Ellen's paper here that's posted to her blog. Her paper is called Beyond Translating. And the story of her paper is so powerful. It's also in the book, this example, um, where Ellen was the translator for her family. So between multiple grandparents who spoke different languages, different Asian languages, um, including uh, 
Din, Dizu and Cantonese, among several other languages, Ellen was the common link. She was the one that could translate to English. And in her paper, she wrote this scene of memory where she goes to visit her dad at work and her dad uh, works at the sushi counter at a Whole Foods. And she's talking to her dad on the side and she sees a customer come up and this customer asks her dad a question in English. And Ellen is like stepping forward, ready to translate. It was a question about some specific question about the rice. And, uh, or I guess it's the question is what's the difference between these two spring rolls? And before Ellen can step in to translate, her dad answers the customer himself in English. And Ellen has this moment um, where she realizes, and I'm gonna put this in her words, that's one memory that will most likely have me questioning the fact that my parents don't need me as a translator as much as I thought they do as the years pass by. It's a saddening thought that keeps getting bigger and bigger, but I guess it'll get easier as I write it on paper. I hope so. Just the thought of losing that one thing that I have done to help them so much is heartbreaking because they've done so much for me. And for me to lose that role is like losing a lifetime job. So I share that because of the poignancy of this moment that Ellen now has the language to describe and to process through her paper. And then in her digital story, it's an amazing collection of these different voices um, in her family and extended family in different languages. So that was one option after the paper, but then a different year, we were able to uh, make a mural uh, on an, this is an underpass. It's actually a particularly grimy, gross underpass. <laughs> It's That's one of those underpasses where even when it's been dry for weeks, there's mysteriously water still dripping down. Um, we'll, we'll move on from that detail. <laughs> uh, but we turned this underpass, I would say we completely transformed it. So uh, students were in charge of taking these portraits of other students. And uh, this was an opt-in, like no one was forced to have their picture up on the wall. But uh, it became this amazing process as students started to see, again, these themes of language, power, and identity. This is like one of my favorite student pictures of Jamila standing in front of her, her own portrait on the wall. And then underneath those portraits were quotes from the students' papers. Um, so again, it was this idea that the work we were doing was, it, it actually, it was intended to be, and it was compelling enough that it was worthy of sharing with a wider audience. Um, and here you can see a quote from Dakota that from her paper says, I was struck between, or sorry, I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. I was either too white or too black. Um, and there's many other quotes um, you, there from Jalisa, your language is what makes you unique. So this idea that the work that students do as, as the act of going to school can be something that allows them to reconsider and understand more deeply who they are, also understand the world around them in deeper and more complex ways and understand the nexus of those two, what is possible for them in the world. No, that's that's perfect. And I, I just wanted to say as a reader of your book, it, it is really lovely to read Ellen's piece and hear that, um, that story and you can really hear that struggle as well as her like discovering something new about her father right that you know she was worried at first and then realized you know so um so the examples of work are so powerful and then um what i was struck by what you just said that i think i didn't know was that the students took those portraits of each other right so you know i feel like there's like a real i think you i feel like what i sense is you start to to see like a 
community in the classroom and that collaborative work that you were talking about and not just like individual kids and their individual work right but it's really like the yeah. community coming together yeah and i think it's both um out of intentionality but also out of necessity that if everyone is say waiting in line just to talk to me and i'm the only person that can give feedback yeah. on people's drafts or if i'm the only person that can take those photographs I, we most of them are going to spend most of their time waiting for me and i'm not sure that uh, my feedback is exclusive. I think that I, the peer feedback process, or in this case, the students are better photographers than I am. And so the ones that were most interested in photography, they, they volunteered to be the ones to be the portrait takers. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were coordinated all the signups and things like that. Um, and really just this, I mean, it's another version of this um, democratization of the classroom. And it, it does relate to the section of the book uh, titled New Roles for Teachers and this idea of changing the the Hollywood stereotype of teacher in front of the room lecturing at, at students and then students just responding with the exact information that the teacher has given them. And instead it's much more about joint scholarship and inquiry and creation and this idea of this collective where we're supporting each other to make something that we can feel proud of as a community and we can have a really good time sharing those papers and be, and I, me and also others can really genuinely be like, that was really amazing to hear that. And like really nice job with your paper. I appreciate this specific part of it. Um, but also we can share it widely and we can feel really proud of it. And, uh, and we can really also counteract a lot of the kind of myths that are out in society that like, oh, teenagers are, are clueless and like, don't take them too seriously. And instead, people can see the work as teenagers is actually incredibly profound and actually what we need more of in this Love world um, instead of something that should be shoved to the side. Yeah, and I agree. Like I, you know, I mean, not to overstate this, but just that, you know, that is that is quite the, the underpass and kind of, you know, you're nervous and then you like realize like, oh, wait a minute, you know, like, look at look at this transformation and there's a school right there. You start to sort of notice the world around you too, right? Like, I mean, I knew the school was there, but it just that connection to like, look, we're all sort of in this learning community together, I think is so powerful. Um, and um, uh, and the portraits of the kids were actually incredibly um, dynamic, which I also loved. Um, one of the things, and I know we're going to get to um, certain opportunity to, to, to that you're going to prompt us for a second to think about something, but I wanted to, like in your book, you talk about the sort of messiness of this um, also, <laughs> you know, in the context of like all this visioning and work together and everything. And, um, and also I wanted to say that the sort of ways that you organize the work, cause you specifically say in the book that actually you wanted them to write out their essays before they made it, these videos or made the, the photographs and, you know, like that you have, there's certain orders to things that you, that you guide the classroom through. So, you know, it's like this, this sort of way that you've learned over time that actually these things have this sort of give and take that, that work together, you know, and that you're constantly learning this too. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just want to, I feel like the book is a really lovely set of stories like you just told along with sort of your kind of meta narrative of like how you're guiding this as well as stories of like, ooh, 
you know, that day the kids just came in and they slumped in their desks and, you know, and I had to figure out something else to do, or, you know, we really ran into disagreements and I had to sort of, you know, and, and all the ways that it gets hard and kind of messy. So, yeah. Um, and so I could talk a little bit more about that and then we'll have sure. our pause for people to create on their own, but thanks for pointing out uh, that side of things because yeah, I don't see, uh, it's my work is not a hero story of any sort. <laughs> um, and it, the reality of teaching for me and for everybody is it's so incredibly challenging. And in one day, you know, there's a handful of really th things to feel really excited about. And there's like maybe a backpack of things where you're like, oh, that did not, that part of it, or like that interaction makes me unclear of what's going on with that student. And um, so I, I feel like we have to, and you understand this, and we collectively as a society is what I mean, we have to understand that teaching is so intertwined uh, with the broken world that we live in. And so uh, on the days when a student comes in and they were evicted the night before their family was evicted from their apartment, or on the days uh, when there was a, a tragedy in our city or a national tragedy on based on racial injustice or uh, really any other of the long list of things that is going on, then um, we carry that and students carry that. So students carry uh, an enormous amount with them and figuring out what what is needed when and what's the best way to navigate that for them and for us as educators, I feel like is huge. Um, yeah, in the book, you reminded me of the example with Amanda just where it's like a student just totally struggling with work. And like, like we were a couple weeks into this project and I was like, Amanda, I like every time I checked with her, she's like, I got this, I got this. And like a couple weeks in, I was like, you lost me. I, I like, I don't understand what's going on. And I'm trying to not to be too angry in talking with Amanda. And then by, because I'm sitting down next to her and we have a connection, a relationship eventually and like I can kind of like get sense there's something else going on and it becomes clear that she actually has a great idea for this podcasting project but she finally finally admits that she's really scared because she's not sure um, if it's a story that's worth telling and in that case it was the story of her being bullied uh, for based on her physicality in middle school and then turning into a bully also in middle school and she she is not sure if this is an okay story to tell. And I'm like, Amanda, this is amazing. Um, let's start brainstorming together about how you can do it. And eventually, you know, this is, there's a million stories that end up with an ending where it's not, you don't feel as great about it as the teacher. And you're like, maybe I help that student get some of their work done and feel better about this aspect of their lives. But with Amanda, that one did really come to fruition in an amazing way and that her podcast ended up on her NPR station in Philadelphia. And it's like a gripping tale as you listen to her talk about um, what it's like to both be bullied and then turn into a bully. And then you're also reminding me, Christina, of uh, the section of the book that uh, where I'm describing uh, what it's like. I think this was the day after um, the killers of of, or the killer of Michael Brown was not indicted. So we all came into the classroom and it was like this heavy weight. And uh, of course, we're gonna talk about it because it's so present in everyone's life. And I'm not gonna force anyone to talk about it, but to take um, the nonviolent trainer, George Lakey's ideas, but try to uh, create a container 
where people feel like they can say what needs to be said. And it's different what needs to be said for different people. In my classroom, I have students who know people who have been killed by police violence. And I have students who have parents who have who are police officers. And those, uh, I, the second category also crosses racial boundaries. So it's not just like the white students have parents that are police officers. So I have people that are all um, feeling all kinds of different things. Uh, and maybe I'll just read a short section and then we'll pause. So this is that day uh, trying to, um, after I described multiple students, just really feeling intense despair and uh, like someone breaking out in tears because there's just, there's no other response for her. And as a black woman, she's so hopeless. And then I was reflecting on that and that like, I think I, hope I created a space for them, but it's not like I felt like, oh, that was an amazing discussion and we really solved racial injustice or something like that, but more just um, the messiness of that work. And I said, the space I inhabit at any moment is not neutral. Rather, I'm aware of a complex and conflicting array of student needs that I strive to recognize and respect. In a moment when official structures in our society condone the pointless death of an African-American youth, no one should be denied, denied their grief, grief or rage, and there's a strong need to validate it. I look for openings to acknowledge sorrow and fear that people, and fear that people felt, but maintained awareness of my goal of pushing students towards complex and critically nuanced views of society. Sometimes asking people to explain ideas more fully or to avoid generalizations. Another consideration as I attempted to create space and when necessary steer the discussion is that it would have been foolish for me to ignore the fact that many of my students of color were impacted more intimately than, right, than others in the room by this event. They're required to live their lives with the knowledge that their identities mean facing risk in our society. This moment reminded many that there's rarely accountability for racist acts by government agents. This is information some of my white students had been able to ignore but needed to be able to hear and understand. For this reason, I paid particular attention to affirming voices and ideas that are too often marginalized. Um, so again, it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly messy <laughs> and I, and it, this feeling of like, I, I hope I did okay in leading that discussion. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure of the 33 students in the room, there were like at least 31 di very different feelings that they walked out of the room with. Um, and some were probably very frustrated by the discussion and others, um, felt very validated by it. And, uh, and that is teaching in a public school in the United States of America, right? <laughs> yeah, and I just think so many teachers here in that might recognize their last week or the last couple yeah. of weeks too, just, yeah. you know. And I happen to teach in a very integrated school, but I think these issues are across the board regardless of the student demographic. So, uh, and the, the shape of the conversations might be different, but I, I do feel like these are the conversations that need to be happening in all um, corners of our country. Great. I think that's a really nice moment to stop and kind of put a prompt out for people who are listening to think about. Yes. Um, so here we go. So yes, we were very curious to hear from you all. And as you think about some of these ideas and this idea of teaching for a living democracy, and I really put this out because uh, in the book, it's not like there's one formula or there's a checklist and then you're like doing it. I, I, I no longer feel like that in any way about my career uh, and my work day to day as a teacher, but really um, it's this 
this framework that I'm trying to, that I'm constantly adapting and that's constantly evolving. So I'm wondering what it means for you all. Uh, what are the ways you understand and enact what it could mean to teach for a living democracy? And we want people to feel free to respond in any format such as artwork. Um, it could be writing like journal writing or poetry or images. And we have the hashtag living democracy. So as people are putting different ideas and thoughts out, um, you can tag it living democracy and we'll really see a range of things that um, encapsulate for all of you what it might mean to teach for a living democracy and continue to expand this idea and this concept. Great, that's a beautiful question to think about. I just encourage anybody listening to go ahead and pause and to take a moment with this. And then um, when you're done, come back to join us. Um, I have a few more questions for Josh. Um, and, uh, and I want to start there's so much that you shared with us um, and an aspect of your book that I think that um, uh, writing teachers would be, there's a couple of aspects that, that you're both an English and a history teacher. In the book, you talk about yourself as really a humanities teacher, right? And really that often the lines between those disciplines start to blur. Um, and then you're also, Teach, you've described some ways that you teach writing and you yourself are a writer you know you're you wrote this book you're 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 keeping a blog you're you're reflecting constantly on your practice and sharing that out in the world so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about how those pieces fit together for you and what it means to you to be a teacher of writing and a teacher who writes yourself yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it, it makes me think about uh, how hard writing is <laughs> and really how much of a struggle it, uh, it is to, uh, to create something that one can feel proud of. And even then I feel like for me, I don't know if other writers are like this, there's still a million questions and I still need to ask a million different people, what do you think of this? And, uh, and I get feedback and sometimes I get feedback that I agree with. And sometimes I get feedback if it's in the drafting stage where I'm like, oh, I don't think I wanna go with that idea or that suggestion. And so it makes me wonder as a teacher, uh, how I can create writing environments that match, at least for me, my own writing process, which um, there, it some of which I think uh, there are some broader generalities that I think are universal. And a couple of them that I really uh, try to emphasize greatly for my students now is first of all, you don't need to have all your ideas sorted out when you begin writing. And I feel like very often, um, and it, it helps uh, at different points in the writing process to outline your ideas, but there's a, a lot of students that if their first step is to outline and to uh, reveal their thesis statement, they're stuck right there and they're not gonna be able to continue. And I'm the same, I mean, the amount of writing I did that didn't make it into the book and like all the rough writing in the early stages, it was enormous. And, uh, and that was really writing as thinking and writing as developing ideas. So I'm constantly aware of trying to give my students low stakes opportunities to write in their notebooks. Um, it's, it, it's journals that are in their notebooks as other assignments. Um, and there's times where it's like, okay, this needs to be highly polished writing. You're revising this other, several times. And there's definitely many other situations where it's just, you're developing your ideas. Um, so that's one thing. 
Um, another thing is really working to create these communities where uh, it's clear to everyone that when someone is sharing their work, that's that's sacred time. And it's a, a big deal. And I share with students, it's a really big deal for me to share my work with others. And I would be furious and hurt if anyone was ever just rude uh, and uh, responded to my work in a flippant or just like uh, writing, writing it off kind of way and discrediting it. So I work really hard to make sure that students are able to um, be fully on to respond to others. And uh, at the same time, like I said, if you, if as a student, you have to get feedback from three different people on your paper, which is something that I would frequently ha happen in my class, then um, you get to decide what are the questions you want your reviewers to focus on, what kind of feedback you would like. And then I tell them that as an author, you get to decide which feedback you're going to incorporate into your revisions and which feedback you're going to ignore because that's not your intent in your writing. Um, and there's something wrong, I will say that I'll say to students, if you're ignoring all the feedback you get, that's that's a separate issue. But it doesn't mean that every idea that you receive uh, needs to be integrated into your own writing. So there's a lot of agency as the writer. Um, and then again, we're sharing our work out loud as final products and really celebrating it. So I'm really trying to create this type of a writing environment where um, it's about ideas and it's about engagement of your readers and it's about finely crafted writing. So to give an example, just recently, recently being like two days ago and having just spent a weekend reading all these papers, um, my students, throughout, my English students throughout the year write advanced essays and what I call them advanced essays just so that they can switch in their mind like, okay, if in the past I was, it was drilled into me, I need to write a five paragraph essay over and over it helps to just call it something else then they can realize, okay, I can shed some of those old, old ideas. I can keep some of the skills that helped me. And in our English class, we read the wonderful novel Exit West by Moshin Hamid. Um, we saw the, the documentary called Documented by Jose Antonio Vargas. And uh, we read an essay called Return to Nigeria. And we were investigating the theme of crossing boundaries. So then it was time for students to begin writing their papers. And they were writing about this theme. They could use any of those things as sources, but they could write about any aspect of crossing boundaries that they wanted to. So it didn't have to be an immigration story, even though uh, that was what we focused on more in our readings. Uh, when we brainstormed a list together of different ways people choose to cross boundaries or not, and the different impacts of crossing boundaries for um, in different ways. So in the end, over the weekend, um, and again, this is going through the whole process of several weeks of writing. Uh, it was amazing to read this wide range of papers with all each these papers. I, I actually talk about papers having a, a larger idea or revealing a larger idea instead of just a thesis or an argument. So they get to something. It's like writing as this investigation of ideas. And um, I was reading Stella's paper about being ashamed of her own language and this boundary of language at home and language out in the world. And Marnay's paper as a young black woman code switching and then because uh, she speaks a certain way being accused of talking white in with the kids on her block and then having to navigate these different boundaries. Those are about language, but then Sophia writing about growing up with a sibling who had mental illness and that boundary and seeing it around her um, Bella wrote this amazing paper about catcalling on the street and like the ways that people try to just on like a typical casual interaction exert power over one another. Uh, Julian wrote about his Ghanaian slash US identity and the different boundaries between him and his parents. Uh, Maya wrote about colorism. 
Deja wrote this amazing essay about faith and the different ways people interpret sacred texts. So it was a, this collection of writing where the papers are very different from each other in a very good way. And it, th at their best, they were investigating ideas that were truly important to the students and helped the students to often see themselves differently and to understand the world in new ways. And just to make sure that I'm connecting this back to the idea of teaching for a living democracy, to me, the idea of living democracy, it's these, it's these beliefs and behaviors um, and values. And these, all these ideas are what I mean by living democracy, because I'm clear in the book that voting is important, it's super important, but I'm really about understanding democracy as much more than just the act of showing up in a voting booth, but the everyday interactions and the ways that we relate to the world and the ways that students feel that they have agency um, with the world around them. Great, thank you for tying that back. That's, that's beautiful. Um, because these came from the last couple of days and you've referred to teaching online, we're almost at the one year anniversary of the Philadelphia Public Schools going completely online. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of, uh, you're great through this book painting pictures of what this looks like and how, how do you continue? I mean, clearly you are continuing this work um, as even though you're at a distance from your students and they're at a distance from each other. So maybe you could share some of the things that, that you've been learning during this challenging sure. time. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's like, do I have to talk about this? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this morning I had my first class of the day, which was uh, one of my US history classes. We had this amazing discussion responding to um, a part of a podcast from Isabel Wilkerson that I we read a couple paragraphs of hers. Uh, and then uh, students really had these really insightful ideas about whether um, there's lasting social change happening right now in our society. And, uh, and in the midst of it, you know, people's mics are cutting out and like some people are writing, uh, like some people are sharing out loud and some in the chat. And it's, it is the chaos and the messiness that I was talking about before. And then my next class where I thought I had a really solid lesson plan, you know, it was just like much more, uh, much less participation. And, uh, and again, it's like calling on people where it's unclear if it's a tech problem or if like they're not in front of their computer at that moment. And uh, just all those realities of, and then there were like these larger Verizon outages today. <laughs> But in the midst of that, um, I, I definitely am stay, attempting to stay true to some of the core values of my teaching, such as building relationships and continually validating student work. Um, so breakout rooms as this place where I, it's like the equivalent of sitting down at a table with the students. And I've been conscious that there, in the classroom, there's all these moments where students get to eavesdrop on me talking with another student about their work. And it's really valuable that like, I could be sitting at the table a table of four and I'm talking to one student, the other three are hearing me and then they're like, oh, I might consider something like that for my work too. So I am aware of still pulling groups to breakout rooms and not just one at a time to breakout rooms um, so that students can still um, have these conversations where they eavesdrop on each other as well as they're talking about their work. Um, so that's one thing that I've tried to stay true to. I guess one other uh, thing that has been nice for us in the midst of the challenges of this um, is that I've instituted, we call them weather reports. So I've, I've normalized talking about the weather and it's actually really entertaining since we're at different places. <laughs> so every class I'll give a weather report 
and then I have three or four other people that I've emailed and a weather report can be about what you see outside your window, like the weather. It can be uh, what's going on inside of you. Uh, and that, so that could be emotional. It could be what you're reading, what you're listening to, what you're watching. It could be anything going on for your family. Um, it could be anything going on in our city or in the country. So you get to choose when it's your moment for a weather report. But uh, starting out class by hearing from a handful of people and then anyone else can volunteer to do an additional weather report each day. I think for me, it's been, it's so much better than just me hearing my own voice all the time, which gets really, really old. <laughs> um, and just instituting it, which again, in person, it would be more normalized that of course we'd hear from other people uh, and a range of people regularly. Uh, but I think on Zoom, the default is, you know, the one speaker and no one ever knows when to unmute and speaking over each other and everything like that. But weather reports have been a nice way to connect and build community. And then after weather reports, uh, whenever there's student work that I can give shout outs to, we also have 12th graders who are assistant teachers and I encourage them to give shout outs to. So just trying to really acknowledge the work that the, my different classes, the groups are doing. Yeah, yeah, that, that the seeing each other and in these spaces. And I, I appreciate that you're, you're, you're thinking about like hearing each other, you know, how do you, how do you do that sort of casual listening to that can be so important in a community? I totally agree. Yeah. Just hearing each other's voices. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so your, your book, I mean, I, I, I loved your book as a, you know, and I think that it's really, um, you know, filled of so much of your deep inquiry, but, you know, it's also feels very conversational, like you're really speaking to your colleagues and to um, other teachers who really want to think about what does it mean to, to teach for a living democracy. And this is really a, a conversation that you're engaging here. Um, the epilogue is really a, a, a for teachers specifically. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, what I love is it's filled with student quotes from there, from students' final portfolios. Um, uh, Haisha writes, I feel like in this classroom, I feel like this classroom is a place where I can create a connection and I'm not only eating up facts that are thrown at me. And, uh, Amina, in order to understand yourself, you have to find out what you believe in and what impact you want to have on the world. I've thought deeply about what kind of person I want to be and how can the actions that I have make an impact on the world. So I think these are like really beautiful thoughts and sharings for teachers moving forward. And I was just wondering as we sort of close this conversation today, you know, sort of what, what are your, um, your main thoughts that you'd like to share and to encourage forward as we continue this discussion and, and developing these practices. Yeah, and again, thanks so much for sharing those words. And it, the epilogue, yeah, it's this combination of me really thinking about my own progression and the many, many struggles and the ways that I feel continually frustrated and challenged which is part of the beauty of teaching, of course, in, is that there's the endless challenge and this feeling like it could always be going better. Um, but then also these moments where seeing these students' creations and it's really 
awe-inspiring and it's so not about me at that point <laughs> um, in a really nice way that it, it is fully the students have created um, whatever it is we're talking about the context and and the growth and the insight that comes out through those projects is really um, it's not something that you can make up <laughs> or like or uh, just kind of, it's not something that you can joke about because it's so serious in the end and it's so profound. Yeah. And so in between those uh, excerpts from different students' final portfolios are the paragraphs where I'm talking about different aspects of this. And then here's my last paragraph uh, in this. I did feel like the book needed a section that just spoke directly to teachers and not so much um, about uh, uh, in a classroom sense, but just in a human sense. Mm -hmm. So teaching for a living democracy means committing ourselves to practices and structures that value students as people with complex human needs. It means sometimes waking up in the night preoccupied with students, feeling despair about the challenges of the work. Teaching for a living democracy is a way of fully interacting with the world, filling our days with ideas, creativity, hope, and possibility. And yeah, I mean, so much of my own teaching life has been about my own growth as as a scholar as a human being as someone that understands how how to interact and really um affirm people and and be human alongside them in a way that humanizes them mm -hmm. yeah well thank you so much for sharing with us josh i really um appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about this work and um you know i am left with this this sense of you know the the work you're all doing together like I think it's very um very alive um like the book is sort of a embodiment of a living democracy that it really does take this sort of shared work together um so um I want to remind people to um uh maybe we could put the the uh Sure. prompt up one more time because we really are trying to encourage a conversation around these ideas the hashtag is living democracy here it comes um and as it's so great to talk with you christina thanks again for having me yeah there's the information i would love to see all the different things people create and all the different thoughts that people have about what teaching for a living democracy means to them so thank you so much. This has been NWP Radio, a broadcast of the National Writing Project, and we wish you a lovely day ahead. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.